think of things. I have thought quite a bit as to what I would say to you this time. It's twelve years since I've talked to an AA convention in Arkansas. And I've always remembered that session in 1953. The great pleasure I had out of it and the great amount that I received from the other speakers, just as I have this time. When I came in Friday night and yesterday, as I was circulating and attending the session, I found there were a considerable number of people here whom I already knew, whom I had met before when I was here and whom I had met uh, at other AA meetings in other parts of this general area. But I also found there were a great many people I didn't know, a great many people whom I met for the first time and some of you whom I have not yet. So it seemed to me that I ought to hew to the regular line and give you just a little bit of my qualifications for being here. I don't want any misunderstanding about it. I have earned the right to stand here. As a matter of fact, when I first learned of AA, which was in early 1939, I had come to the end of my road. I had been looking for help of some sort for five long years. But back in the 1930s, the word alcoholism was not in use. I had the vaguest idea of what it was that had gone wrong. I couldn't understand why someone who had started out along with her friends and become a, an unusually good drinker. For in my early drinking days, I carried away all the honors. Uh, I could drink more than anybody else. And I'd been in AA several years before it dawned on me that if I gained that reputation of being able to drink more than anybody else, why, I must have been drinking more than anybody else. It didn't occur to me at the time. And when I was growing up, prohibition being still in force, and drinking having become the great American activity, this was something to be very proud of. People looked with respect on the person that could carry their liquor well. As a matter of fact, people boasted about it. When I was still in my late teens, that boasting on the part of a couple of bows of mine led to a series of bets because somebody else put up another candidate, also female, as being able to drink better than I could. And my particular followers couldn't accept that. And so during the course of an evening when this argument was going on, it ended with over $5,000 being put up in bets as to which of us could drink more and better. And naturally, something had to be done to let these debts be paid off. What was done was to set up a party. The other girl was a young married woman, and her in-laws were away in Europe, so there was a great big house available full of servants. And this was chosen as the scene of the contest. 
partly because that house had a good cellar. The arrangements were very carefully made. The supper was buffet, and the servants were all sent away, so there'd be a clear path for anything we might choose to do. And in the basement of that house, there was the kitchen and a big living room for the servants, a lot of space. And it was down there that not only the food was set out, but also the bar was set up. Now, they wanted this to be a fair contest. And so three men were chosen to be the judges, and they were not permitted to drink at all. Because their job was to keep a very close eye on the two of us and see that neither of us threw anything into the potted palms uh, or otherwise cheated. The drinks for the evening, at least for us, other people could drink what they pleased, but we were supposed to have exactly the same drinks, so there'd be no hanky-panky about that. And the drink chosen was something known as a French 75. I don't know if any of you have ever had a French 75, and I wouldn't suggest you're going back to drinking just in order to try it. This being prohibition, whiskey was not safe. At that particular period in Chicago, where this happened, this is where I was born and grew up, everybody was making their own gin in the bathtub. There had been a very tragic event uh, the year before when some bad whiskey had got in and a number of people had lost their eyesight and some had been paralyzed. And so no one was trusting what they got from bootleggers and they were getting pure alcohol and turning it into gin in the bathtub. So gin was the basis of this French 75, our own fine homemade gin, practically pure alcohol. And what made it into a highball was champagne. The drink was gin and champagne. And part of the reason why this affair was taking place in this particular house was that there was an ample supply of good champagne available. Our drinks were made by the three sober judges and given to us so that it was certain that each of us had one at the same time. The party began about six o'clock. Well, we'll skip over a lot of it. It was a very good party. I'll give you just two episodes during the evening to give you some idea what kind of a party it was. There was a dumb waiter in this house. This is a great big old affair. And somebody wanted to know how high up it went, so I jumped into the dumb waiter and rode it up to the attic and down again. And on one other occasion, we had one of our members who was a very good pianist. But we couldn't keep him at the piano because he liked the bar better. And remember, I told you the bar was set up in the basement, and on one occasion I picked him up and carried him up and punched him down at the piano. That strength, I can assure you, came out of the bottle. It was not normal to me to be able to hoist a man up a flight of stairs. About three o'clock in the morning, the party began to dwindle in numbers. There were quite a few bodies lying around the house, there were a number of people that had somehow, by hook or crook, managed to leave. But it wasn't until five in the morning that it had settled down to the two contestants and the three judges. And at that point, we five went out and had a big breakfast. It was a draw. She and I were still on our feet. We had had well over 20 of these drinks, 
course of the evening, speech, and we were still going strong. And I've been saying this for a good many years, and I still say it, if she's still alive, one of these days I'm going to meet her at an event like this. I don't think anyone but an alcoholic in the early stages, as I was, and as she clearly was, could have consumed that amount of liquor and still been on their feet. Something that very few people realize, and that I often tell when I'm talking to groups of young people in colleges or high schools, is that this capacity of which you drinkers are so proud of being able to carry their liquor better than anybody else is actually one of the symptoms of early alcoholism. It is not anything of which anybody should be proud, rather it should frighten them a bit and make them want to look into what the other symptoms are that are either ahead of them or that they're already going, that are going to lead them inevitably down the same path that most of us in this room have trodden. At any rate, that was one of the episodes in the early days of my drinking. And if I had known then what I know today, I would have known that I was a marked woman, that I was doomed for trouble. But it was a good many years after that before the signs began to come along that are visible to other people, the bad signs. I was 27 before I had my first blackout, and I didn't know what a blackout was. And I thought that I must have had some brain injury that had made me lose my memory for the events of the night before, and I went immediately to the doctor's. Well, I had had a concussion. I'd had a fall and hit my head, not drunk. I had missed my footing on a, sta a stair and gone down a half flight of stairs and hit my head on the newel post. And he said, indeed, I had had a concussion and it would pass and I needn't worry about it. The trouble was it didn't pass. Instead of this period of amnesia being a unique occasion, uh, it kept happening more and more frequently. I would wake up in the morning and I would be home in bed, but I wouldn't have any idea of what had happened from 9 or 10 o'clock on the night before. And yet people began telling me some of the things I had done during that period, which were of considerable disturbance to me. For apparently when I was in the blackout, my tongue was unloosed and I often said things I didn't mean and would have much preferred not to have said, and my behavior began getting out of hand. And the next thing that occurred, and all of this took place in the course of one year, the year that I was 27, was that this great capacity of mine for drinking more than anyone else and remaining apparently quite sober, being the one that drove the car home and that took care of everybody else and that remembered everything that happened, I began to discover that if I had been sitting drinking with my friends and got up very suddenly, I was apt to fall flat in my face. And I found this very humiliating. This too, instead of passing, increased. I developed what is known as rubber legs. Now for someone who'd had the name of hollow legs, uh, it was very humiliating to have rubber legs. 
I didn't like that change one bit. And the third thing that occurred during that year, all of those years, and it had been about ten, when my drinking was so splendid, when I could be so proud of it, I had never known what a hangover was. I never had a headache. I always felt perfectly all right in the morning. I was always able to get up and go to work, for I had a job at that time. It just didn't bother me. And it seemed to me that all of a sudden, I lost that ability to shake off the effects of the night before, as I was washing my face, and discovered that in the morning I was literally too sick to get up. I couldn't function. I had the shake so badly that I couldn't manage to get the lipstick on where it belonged. It was likely to get up here or at any part of my face excepting on my lips. And then I discovered at the same time, I don't remember the details, but I'm sure somebody gave me a hand at this and told me that the hair of the dog would help that, that if I had a drink or two, my hands steady, I could stand on my legs, this terrible seasickness subsided, and I was able to function. And at this point, I don't have to tell you, I was really hooked. Because I discovered also that after those first few drinks that enabled me to get up and get dressed and get myself together in one piece, that after about a half or three quarters of an hour, it began to wear off and the shakes began to come back and I had to have a little more uh, to keep my equilibrium. And I discovered that this lasted all day. And that therefore I had to find ways and means of keeping that liquor coming all day long just in order to look and act like everybody else. This, I think, is the point at which we have really become enslaved to what used to be our great friend, the bubble. Let me go back a minute and say that when I discovered alcohol, when I first had a drink, I discovered a great friend. For this answered a great many problems for me. I was extremely shy, and like any other girl growing up, I wanted to be popular and to be able to mix with other people, and I had never been able to do this very comfortably until I discovered drink. So for me, it was a kind of magic, right from the beginning. It solved some very important problems. It made me feel comfortable with other people. It loosed my tongue so I wasn't a bump on a log. It allowed me to feel a part of the group that I was with. It allowed me to enjoy myself in comfort. And right from the beginning, I was dependent on it to do this. Now, I think that what was happening to me is not unusual for someone growing up. I think a great many kids go through that period, both male and female. But most of them have to work it out unaided. They do not find magic in a bottle. That isn't what alcohol does to them. And so they don't become dependent on it. But it's my personal conviction that most of us are already made 
that we are the perfect prepared soil for the seed of alcoholism, and the first time we take a drink, that seed begins to germinate. This may not be true of a hundred percent of us, but I know it's true for an awful lot of us, because I've compared notes with so many. But you know, at that point in life, when you're just beginning to go out into the world and to meet new people and to mix with them and to grow up, you don't compare notes on this kind of thing. It never occurred to me that I was any different from anybody else. I thought everyone found this same magic in the bottle that I had discovered. I thought everyone needed the drinks they were all having the same way I did. It never occurred to me that I was different. But looking back, I believed that I was different from the word go. I believed that I was the perfectly prepared bed in which to plant that seed. And that all it needed was the watering out of the bottle to grow. It took ten years to grow. And I must confess that I had an awful good time a lot of that time. So long as I wasn't paying any price, so long as it wasn't giving me these, uh, these hideous results, the hangover and the blackouts and the terrible need for a drink in the morning, I could enjoy it, and I did. But from that time on, the pleasure turned to pain. And as soon as I was hooked on it, I really was in internal misery most of the time. And I was very concerned as to what had happened. Why had this thing changed? Why had someone who had been such a fine drinker turned into someone that people now began to talk to and say, you ought to watch it? You realize that you're drinking too much? Uh, in fact, they did everything except call me some of the nasty names. That didn't come for a couple of years more. And I was concerned, and I started going to doctors to try to find out what had happened. Well, this was in the mid-1930s. I happened to be living abroad in London, England, and I went to a good many doctors, and none of them could tell me anything at all. The kind of thing they told me was of no use whatsoever. They told me I was working too hard. I had my own business, and you work harder at your own business, usually, than you do for someone else. They told me I was both working and playing too hard. That I was burning the candle at both ends, that I ought to slow down. No one told me that I ought to stop drinking. I don't suppose that I really told them how much I was drinking, but I did tell them what it was doing to me and how it had changed. And this important piece of information meant absolutely nothing to those trained medical and psychiatric people that I saw. Gradually, I became convinced that I was insane. I became convinced that something had happened in my mind, since nothing physical seemed uh, to be found that was wrong, that clearly something had broken up here and changed the whole pattern of my living and my drinking. And I began to seek ways out, as many of us do, my first uh, as effort to escape from this was right in London, which is a very big city, and the kind of business I was in had brought me in contact with many different groups, and I simply began changing my companions. I moved from group to group. Well, there was very good reason for this, because as soon as people began talking to me about the way I was drinking, 
Uh, I had to find somebody else to be with. There wasn't much good that that was doing me. I couldn't bear it. And I can tell you that in less than a year, I'd gone through London like a dose of salt. I had joined and left so many different groups that I'd lost track of how many there were. And clearly, I had to get out. That city wasn't big enough for me. It only had eight million people in it. And so I began the geographic cure. I had two friends that owned a little inn, a little over a hundred miles from London, where a lot of us used to go for weekends. And they wanted to go away for the winter. And they were looking for someone that would run their hotel for them that they could trust. It turned out to be me. And I moved down there determined that for a while, at any rate, I wasn't going to drink. Now, this was the first time that that had occurred to me and the first time I was going to attempt it. But I was so sick by that time that I felt I needed a rest. And I found that I could stop. I think the change of atmosphere and the geographic change helped, but at any rate, I stopped drinking. But you know, the most peculiar things happened to me. I had fever and chills. I had cold sweats. I shook all over. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I couldn't imagine what had gone wrong. I went to the local doctor in this little village in England and described my symptoms, and he said, well, I don't know, you've just come down here from London, and he said, uh, I think you picked up some tropical disease. And I don't know very much about tropical diseases, but let's get you into bed and watch you closely, and we'll see uh, how this progresses, for I call a specialist. So he put me in bed and gave me lots of liquids I couldn't eat, you see. And you know, in about three days, I was perfectly well. That doctor was so proud of himself, he cured a tropical disease without even knowing what it was. <laughs> I had never stopped drinking before, so I didn't know what happens when you stop drinking. If you've been drinking as much as I had over that long a time. That was my first experience with what today we call the withdrawal symptoms of alcoholism. Boy, I had them. At any rate, I decided to stay off the stuff. Uh, actually, it happened to be the beginning of Lent, so I decided I just wouldn't drink during Lent. Now, that's 40 days. But at the end of about three weeks, I discovered that there was a little pub around the corner from this inn that served only beer. And I just figured that wasn't really liquor. So I started drinking beer. The only thing about it was that in this part of England, they're very famous for something they call old beer. It's aged in the wood. It has about 80% alcohol. So I did rather well on beer. There'd been another reason why I had taken this particular job. This little hotel did not have a license. That meant it didn't have a cellar and it couldn't serve liquor. But there were two pubs right here, one right across the street and this other little one around the corner. And the butler would take orders and go out with a tray and bring back the drinks for our guests. Well, this butler was a great friend of mine. 
And I had learned somehow or other, at least I had a very strong feeling, I shouldn't keep a bottle in my room. I'd already discovered if I did, it was all gone in the morning when I needed it most, and I didn't even remember drinking it. This was a terrible waste. So I decided not to keep anything in my room. But the old butler would go across the street and get me three or four or five or six pink gins, which is plain gin with a drop or two of vermouth in it. And this was an old Jacobean building, a very beautiful old white building with black beams. And in all of the downstairs rooms, there were little cupboards in the wall with little doors. I was managing the hotel, so of course I had to go around and see that it had been properly cleaned. And I always looked in those cupboards. And there was always a pink tin in the cupboard waiting for me. And while I had the door open, I could take it and put the empty glass back and go about my business, and the people sitting in the living room didn't notice. I didn't think. I don't know whether they did or not. The butler's job was to follow me around and take out the empties and replace them with full glasses. I think it's not very surprising that when the owners came back, uh, they didn't want me there anymore. There, there was one other episode that I'm not very proud of, but it will indicate just how far this had progressed with me and why I really was convinced that I was insane because I was behaving in ways that were so foreign to my true nature and to what I felt I was really like and what I wanted to be like that I just couldn't understand it at all. Since we did not have a license and since we had a number of people that stayed there uh, by the week, it was the middle of the hunting country and a lot of people came up there for the hunting and didn't have houses and stayed in our hotel. And they would have their own liquor, which was kept on the sideboard in the dining room and placed on their table when they came in to meals. And curiously enough, that liquor kept disappearing. And they would complain to me about it and I would say, oh, that's that new kitchen boy. And I'd fire another kitchen boy. You know, when you're in that state, feeling doesn't mean feeling to you. You do what you have to do, and you get what you have to get. And the implications of it are never very clear to you. And yet, I don't think I have to tell any alcoholic in this room what happened at a certain stage in your alcoholism. You don't sleep properly anymore. You just pass out. And this doesn't last too long. And when the effects have worn off a little bit, you wake up. And it's almost always 3 o'clock in the morning. And that is a gray, terrible time to be awake, to be conscious. To be aware, as you usually are, of what's happening. And this was the time of day when I knew that I must be insane. And so I decided that I must go somewhere and get some treatment for this. And I was very much afraid that I would be locked up somewhere and that I might never get out. I hadn't had very much luck with the doctors in London. Also, I was afraid of being locked up in a strange country. It wasn't strange. I'd been living there seven years, but I figured if I was going to be locked up, it better be in my own country. 
And so I set about trying to get home. And I finally managed to collect the funds to go back to the United States. And I had one firm idea in mind, and that was that when I got on that boat, I wasn't going to drink. Now, you see, I discovered I could do this for a period. And I was going to stop drinking. But time had passed, and I no longer could do this. And I remember very little of that voyage back, and I never saw the skyline of New York, and I was the last person off the boat, and I was carried off. And that was the beginning of the last year of my grief. I had come home looking for help. And I sought out some of the friends that I hadn't seen for so many years, and I'm sure they were shocked. They didn't tell me so necessarily. But I gathered a list of names of doctors, and since I thought I was insane, I was only interested in doctors that dealt with the head. So I was looking for psychiatrists or psychoanalysts or people that dealt with insanity. And I went to these men one after the other. In a way, I was unfortunate that the people I had learned of through my friends were all honest men. And when I told them why I was there and what it was that made me think I was insane, they all told me the same thing. They said, we don't know what to do for you. You had better commit yourself to a state mental institution, about which I knew very little, but was frightened to death. And I would always say the same thing, for how long? And they would never tell me. Some of them actually came out with it and said indefinitely. What they were saying to me, in my words, was you are hopelessly insane, you're going to have to be locked up, you might as well go in yourself. And you're never going to get out. And I would leave each doctor's office and I would head for the nearest bar and I would order three or four double martinis because those worked the fastest. And I'd pour them down as fast as I could to forget what the doctor had said. And then I would go on as long as I could before trying another one. One year passed this way. And seven doctors. And when I came to the eighth, I had, with the help of friends, not had a drink for five weeks. So I was in possession of my faculties, and I was talking sense, and I told him what I told the others, that I was convinced I was insane, that I wanted help, and I didn't know if there was any, but I was still looking for it. And he said, you want to get well so badly that I'm going to try to help you. But he said, in my experience, people like you have one chance in a hundred. This was in 1938. One chance in a hundred. Maybe you're that one. I'll take a chance. And he took me on as a patient. That was the beginning of my recovery. Now, I didn't recover bang just because this doctor took me on. I spent seven months in the hospital and another 15 months in the sanitarium in the country getting what I had been seeking so patiently, so persistently, so determinedly, psychiatric treatment 
for what I thought was my insanity. The fact that the doctor said you are not insane didn't mean a thing to me. I thought they were just trying to cheer me up. I was still convinced that I was insane. The interesting thing about this is that the seven months in the hospital, I had no opportunity to drink because I never got out. And I was in a neurological ward in any case, so the machinery wasn't set up to get drinks anyway. It usually is, you know, in hospitals where we land. And as soon as we get in, we find our light, the people who have been there longer than we, and they have it all rigged. And I don't know very many places that you can put alcoholics where they can't get a drink if they're determined to get one. The sanitarium where I went fit at that pattern. And so despite the fact that I was there for help, and that the doctor there had told me that he was willing to give me all the help he could because I wanted so badly to get well, every once in a while I got drunk. Now, he didn't use the word alcoholism anymore than the first doctor had. It simply wasn't in use then. He did not tell me that I was an alcoholic, that my problem was drinking. He did tell me that I was the kind of person who should never drink. But he was the only doctor in that institution that was saying that. All the other people I knew in there, like myself, were being taught how to drink by their doctors. So I thought I had the wrong doctor. In fact, I questioned him about his own drinking and discovered he didn't like the stuff. So I just thought he was an old spoiled sport. He didn't like it. He didn't want anybody else to have it. But I think the major thing that distressed me, that made it impossible for me to accept this from him, in the first place, he couldn't give me any reason for it. Why was I different? Why was I a person who could never drink? I used to be able to drink so well. What had gone wrong? Why couldn't I return to that? He had no answers to these questions. All of the other doctors were telling their patients, oh, well, something has happened underneath and we'll straighten that out and then you'll be right back where you were and able to drink the way you used to. And this made sense to me. As a matter of fact, it still makes sense, only it doesn't work. <laughs> It's perfectly logical if alcoholism comes from an underlying emotional disturbance, as too many psychiatrists still say, that if you can straighten out that underlying emotional disturbance, the drinking should revert to normal. But something else has happened. And they don't talk about that. This is one of the things that those doctors who are working with alcoholics have now learned and do talk about that the only answer for an alcoholic is precisely what my doctor was telling me in 1938, never to touch the stuff again. And the more he told me that, the more appalled I became. For I could look ahead to a flat, gray future. It sure looked like the desert. More than a thing grew on it. There were no people there. I was just going to walk along all by myself in this flat, gray desert forever. Because I used to say to him, I said, you know, I don't like teetotalers. They're not my kind of people, those good gray faces and those pure white teeth. (laughs) 
What have I got to do with them? You know, never smoked a cigarette, haven't got a single stain anywhere. Pure they are. What have I got to do with them or they with me? How can you have any fun with those people? All the people I've ever liked drink. And if I can't drink, how can I be with them? And if I can't be with them, who else can I find to be with? And my poor doctor had no answers whatsoever to any of these questions of mine. He just kept doggedly saying, but you can't drink. And in effect, he was condemning me to a, a living death. Well, that's the way it was for a good year while I was under treatment there. And then one day he called me, and he said, you know, I've about given up on you. I've done all I can do for you, and you still get drunk every now and then, which was true. But he said, I've just received something and read it that I think may help you. Apparently there are a group of people like you who have banded together, and they've been able to help each other. And they've written a book. And they gave me the manuscript for comments, and I'm very excited about it. And I think it might help you, and I want you to read it. And he handed me a manuscript bound in red cardboard covers, you know, with a ring in it. And he said, take this and read it. And I took it. The title was Alcoholics Anonymous. And I began to read and my excitement mounted and mounted, because here for the first time, I discovered what was wrong with me. For the first time, whatever it was that was wrong had a name, alcoholism. Nobody ever loved that name like I did. I had been convinced during that year in an institution that the kind of insanity I had was so bad they couldn't name it. I had good reason to believe this. The place was divided, sort of. It was a great big place, 500 acres, private sanitarium. And there was a house near the gate where they brought people came in. It was down near the road, and very often they'd arrive in a straitjacket screaming. And they'd stay down there in what we called the violent house for a while. And then there was a sort of middle house, which was very carefully watched. There was a nurse at the end of every corridor. And that's where the common rooms were. And after a while, the people would be brought up from the violent house when they'd calm down a bit, and they'd go to the middle house. Then there was a big house right by the gate with no nurses on duty, and that was where the doctor's offices were, and that's where people went when they were about to leave the last few weeks of their stay, they had really complete freedom. They could go in or out without anybody being able to observe it. And I saw people brought in screaming in straitjackets to the violent house and come up to the middle house where I was and move on to the house for the road and go home. But I stayed. And I used to think that I sure had the wrong kind of insanity. If I'd been a little more violent, maybe I could have got well. So that when I discovered that what I had was called alcoholism and that there were a lot of other people like me, and when I read in that book the definition of alcoholism, 
an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind, and that they didn't know what this allergy was or even if it was a real allergy, but there was some bodily difference. That since nobody knew what it was, nobody could change it. Once you had it, you had it for life. But the obsession of the mind, which made you drink when you had decided not to, and boy, I understood that. I'd done that plenty of times. This they could do something about. And if you got rid of that obsession of the mind, you need never drink again. So you wouldn't trigger this bodily difference into action. Now this was an explanation I could understand. This explained to me why the doctor said I could never drink again. I was different. There was something different in my physical makeup. I could never go back to normal drinking. Time I accepted that. But then came the Joker. That darn book had more capital letters in it than any book I'd ever read, and they were all G's. It was full of God. Now, I'd outgrown that when I was 17. That was nonsense, childish nonsense. I went to the doctor and I said, you know, this is fine, this book, for other people, but it's exactly counter to what you've been teaching me. You've been trying to tell me that I'm led around by the nose by my emotions. I only think that my intellect, my mind, is running my life. And here you tell me that this can help me, and this is really emotional hypnosis. You're suggesting that I take a purely emotional way out of it. I said religion is nothing but self-hypnosis. I'm not about to accept this. I just can't buy it. I've learned a lot from this book. I've discovered what it is I have. I've discovered I can never drink again. But I can't follow this. And he said, well, never mind about that. Go back up and read that book. Day after day, I dragged my teeth and I read that book just enough so I could come down and tell him how lousy it was. <laughs> Everything in the world was wrong with that book. It was poorly written. Very unintelligent people must have written it. It had a lot of illogical things in it that I could take apart. Well, I had a ball. This went on for two months. And then one day, something occurred in my private life that constituted a crisis of major proportion. And there was not one single thing I could do about it. I was in a state of anger such as I have never felt before or since. I really know what it means to see red. I saw red. I felt murdered. I was in my room, which was a little tiny room up at the top of the house, under the eaves of a little bitty window, Lying on the bed was this darn book. I wasn't reading it. I was thinking in a way that every alcoholic in the room will understand. I was so darn mad and there was somebody I wanted to kill. I really wanted to kill. I was going down to the town and get two bottles and get drunker than I'd ever been and bust that place up. 
You know, it's a very curious thing about alcoholics. We by and large are pretty intelligent people. But when we get angry at somebody else, we pick up a hammer and bash our own brains in. I don't think that's very intelligent. But we all do it. We've all done it for years, and you know exactly what I mean. And while I was feeling this way and thinking about going down to the village and getting the liquor, my eye fell on the book, which is open on the bed. And I wasn't really looking at it, so it was kind of a blur. But in the center of the page, something stood out. Just a few words. But they were as clear and black as if they had been in raised leather. And what they said was, we cannot live with anger. Well, that's it. I haven't the vaguest idea why that was the particular thing that did it, but it was like a battering ram that, that beat that wall of resistance right down. And the next thing I knew, I was on my knees beside the bed, and I don't know how long I'd been there, but the bedstead was wet with my tears. And I presume I'd been praying. I hadn't prayed for so many years. I didn't really know how. Let's say I'd been in a praying state of mind. And I lifted my head to freedom. I had never felt so completely free in my entire life. The hand of God was on me. I knew that. The presence of God was in that room. I knew that. And I knew one other thing. I could walk out of that third-story window and keep right on walking. I think the only reason I didn't try it was because it was such a little tiny window under the eaves. I might have had trouble getting through it. But I knew perfectly well I could do this, and it suddenly dawned on me, well, of course, now you are in faith. <laughs> now even Dr. Timo can't deny it. So I ran downstairs. I'd made it by this time up to the house by the gate where the doctor's offices were. And I beat on his door, and when he saw my face, he got rid of the patient he had in there, and he took me in and he said, what's happened? And I told him. And he asked me a great many questions. And I said, doctor, I'm, now I'm insane. He said, no, you're not. Should I believe you've had an authentic spiritual experience? You hang on to it. He said, there have been a lot of them in the world, and there's a whole book about them by William James called Varieties of Religious Experience. Get that book and read it. Don't be frightened of it. Now, he said, go back upstairs and read that book. Well, I went back upstairs, and I picked the book up, and you know somebody switched books on me. <laughs> It was a brand new book. It was the most beautiful book I'd ever read. I didn't have a single quarrel with it. I read it through in one gulp, and when I finished, I started at the beginning and I read it through again. When I looked out the window, after I had lifted my head, 
from being on my knees by my bed before I went down to see Dr. Evil, I had looked out on a world I had never seen before. The sky was bluer than any sky I'd ever seen. The green was greener. And later, as I moved about in that sanitarium, everybody looked beautiful. I was on such a pink cloud. I was in such a a high state of mind that the whole world was bathed in beauty. And this lasted for about three months. But almost immediately, Dr. Thibault began pressing me to go into New York and meet these people, and this I did not want to do. I had what I wanted. I had what I needed, and I still wasn't sure of what kind of people they might be. I had a feeling they might be uh, real pious, you know, and pray over me publicly or something, be very embarrassed. I also had a feeling they might all be mission fit the kind of people I'd never met in my life and didn't want to. So I kept putting it off, and it was two months after that experience before Dr. Chibo took matters in his own hand, picked up the phone one day when I was in his office, made a date for me in New York that night, and said, go get ready and get on the train and go into New York. Go to such and such an address. And I did this. And I was... My first startlement were the three people I met at this address, a man and wife and an extra man for me. <laughs> Most attractive guy I've seen in years. Handsome, black-haired Irish. Pity he couldn't make it. But he sure was attractive. My ideas began to change radically. <laughs> And we got on a subway and we went over to Brooklyn to a brownstone house belonging to Bill and Lois. But when we got in there, I'd never seen so many people in my life. There were at least 30. And I ran upstairs to leave my coat and I didn't come down. Remember, I was the one who needed the magic of alcohol to meet strangers. I was the one who had always felt on the outside looking in when I was with a group of people I didn't know intimately. And even sometimes I felt on the outside looking in with people I had known intimately for years. I never belonged. And I was scared to death to go downstairs to that room full of people I didn't know. The woman came up, put her arm around me, and she said, you know, we're waiting for you. We want you down there. Her name was Lois, and she took me down by the hand. I didn't know what I was going to say to these people or whether I'd be able to open my mouth at all. But of course, the first questions they asked me were, when did you have your last drink? And without even thinking, I told them the truth. <laughs> this I'd never done before. Well, I kind of broke the ice and we began talking and the first thing I knew, it seemed to me they were finishing my sentences and I was finishing theirs. I was in communication with strangers in a way I had never been with other human beings in my whole life. 
And I looked around that room, and it was not a room full of strangers. These were my people. I had come home. That was my first experience with what today we call the fellowship of AA. I've never lost that sensation. It's a feeling you can get no matter where you go. In 1951, the government of South Africa took me to South Africa for their first national conference on alcoholism. And one night in a town in South Africa, they shuttled me all over that country. In six weeks, I visited 13 cities. And I was sitting in the hotel lobby, and a man and his wife came in that I had met in Johannesburg when I first arrived. In AA there, AA had not spread all over South Africa, and this particular town didn't have any. He and his wife came in. He was a salesman, and they were traveling. But I had met one man in this town where I was, a judge, who was deeply interested and wanted to start an AA group. He was not an alcoholic, but he wanted to do something about it. And I was sitting talking with him in the lobby of the hotel when this couple walked in. They were Africanists. That meant they spoke a different language. Now, they could speak English because most South Africans speak both languages. They spoke it with an accent, and I had just met them for a few minutes at a meeting. But we went across the street to a place where we could get coffee, and the judge and I and this A.A. and his wife sat up till 3 o'clock in the morning, and you know, it was just like home. We were talking about the same things. We were using the same language. We were as close friends as if we had grown up together. And I found this in New Zealand, and I found this in Australia, and I found it in England and in Ireland. Wherever AAs get together, there is this almost instant communication at a deeper level than most people ever know. This is one of the reasons why I say and mean it that I am glad I am an alcoholic. For if I were not, I would never have had the opportunity to experience it. Thank God I was permitted to live. For I'm one of those who tried suicide twice during my drinking days, and I might very well not have lived long enough to find AIDS. But I did, and I found it. And my introduction to it that very first night showed me what was there for me. This wonderful fellowship, this wonderful companionship, this wonderful communication of understanding that one AA has for another, that we offer to new people who may have never experienced anything like that in their whole life. I never had. It was the first time I had ever felt I belonged. And I have never lost that key. For a long while, this was the main and most important thing to me. It was what AA meant. Oh, of course, I worked on the 12 steps, but I'd been doing that before I ever met any of the people. It was a long while before I realized that there was any more to AA than just the fellowship. That this was a way of life about which I had a great deal to do. 
about which my initial efforts on the twelve steps were only a beginning. Before I realized that I had accepted something that had been freely given to me, that laid upon me a heavy responsibility. For several years after I came into AA, before this became certain, that since I had so freely received this incredible gift, that I had a responsibility. You know, I had a great honor this year. At the 30th anniversary of AA, I was asked to speak at the first big open meeting on Friday night with Bill and Lois. The three of us were the speakers. I had never felt so honored. I was terribly proud. And I can tell you I was scared to death when I got up on that platform. There were 13,000 people in that auditorium. That's an awful lot of people. Especially for someone who fundamentally has had to cope with shyness and nervousness about people all her life. It was a measure of what AA has done for me that I could open my mouth and have any sound come out. But at that 30th anniversary, there was a scene. And there was a statement that was printed, and it was up on every wall and on every pillar in the hotels, which were the various headquarters. And it was on every piece of material about the 30th anniversary. And it embodied this thing that it took me a few years to realize, but which I have felt strongly about ever since. Now, not all of you, I'm sure, could have been in Toronto, and some of you may not have seen the book, the 30th anniversary book yet, and you may not know this theme, but even if you do, I think it bears repeating, and I think it's something that we should make the theme of our meetings from here on in. This is what it says everywhere you looked in Toronto. I am responsible. When anyone, anywhere, reaches out for help, I want the hand of AA always to be there. And for that, I am responsible. This is the kind of responsibility that it became clear to me was what I had to feel and show and accept if I was going to keep this wonderful thing that has been given. We hear a great deal about how we have to give it away in order to keep it. This is a spiritual truth that has been taught for over 2,000 years. It's better to give than to receive. A man must lose his soul in order to find it. We must give it away if we're going to keep it. I think we must remember that there are many, many ways in which we can give it away. The twelfth step mentions only one. And even so, it mentions it far more broadly than most people realize. Carry this message to alcoholics. It doesn't say how. 
It doesn't say you can only carry it to those who have asked for you. It doesn't say you can only carry it if they come to you. It doesn't say you can only carry it on a face-to-face basis with one alcoholic. It gives us very broad latitude in how we can carry this message to alcoholics. Do you realize that we are a tiny minority group A recent article in the New York State Medical Journal says there are nine million alcoholics in the United States. Yet our General Service Office says there are 350,000 alcoholics throughout the world. How tiny can you be? We're not even one percent of the total. How are we going to carry the message to all of those alcoholics out there that we don't even know? Those faceless, nameless alcoholics. The first few years that I was sober, trying so hard to find another woman, was a whole year before another woman came into AA, and everybody thought I was a freak. Wasn't that we weren't trying and that some of them didn't try it, but it didn't work. They didn't stay. They couldn't make it. And very few of them had the courage to face the double stigma that there is for women in being drunk. Even men in AA said, if there's one thing I can't stand, it's to see a woman drunk. Didn't remember how they looked. to walk on Park Avenue in New York, which is really a broad canyon, and on both sides there are very high buildings, apartment buildings, with hundreds and hundreds of windows in them. And that last year of my drinking, I had been in one of those buildings just a block off Park Avenue. And behind that window of the building I was in, I had been going through the torches of hell. And there had been days and even weeks when I couldn't get out because I couldn't stand on my legs and walk. I was too sick. And I was having the night horrors and all those other things. And I'd look up at these buildings with hundreds and hundreds of windows and I'd wonder behind how many windows is there someone going through what I went through. Maybe every other window. How are we going to reach these people? Particularly in my case, how are we going to reach these women who are so protected, who have someone else that will pay the bills, who don't have to go out to work every day, who can hide out? How are we going to reach them? And I felt responsible for this. I felt that it was my responsibility to do everything I could to try to reach 
to get the message through, to carry the message, that there was hope, that there was a way out, that they could get well, they could get out of this living hell where they were imprisoned. And alcoholism is a prison. Everyone who's been in it knows it. The loneliest prison in the world. In my own way, in every way I could think of, I have accepted that responsibility and I'm doing everything I can to carry the message to those alcoholics out there. And I know I can't do it alone. I know that I alone am not enough. And so my life's work has been to recruit other people to help. Most alcoholics live in a non-alcoholic world. They don't all live together. They're not all in one apartment building or one house or even one part of town. They're scattered everywhere. Somebody once said, Alcoholics are everywhere, but they seem to belong nowhere. They're everywhere. We know they're at all echelons of life. They're up at the very top. They're in the middle. And they're at the bottom. Wherever there are people, there are alcoholics. And we who have been fortunate enough to be the chosen, if you like. We who have been plucked out of this living hell and given a second chance, because that's what we've had, a second chance. I don't think there's a single alcoholic who isn't living on borrowed time. We could all be dead. Fifty years ago, we would have all been dead because there was no answer for us. Today there is AA, and there are other things too that will help. If it hadn't been for an understanding psychiatrist with an open mind who forced me, I would never have found AA. There are lots of psychiatrists like that. If they knew more about us, they'd get their patients in here too. And I feel it's our responsibility to let them know. It's our responsibility to let the doctors know. And the hospitals, and the jailers, and the courts, and everybody else. In the non-alcoholic world, where those millions of alcoholics are still suffering. I do not believe that because we have been granted a reprieve from a living death that we can sit on our hands and clutch it to ourselves and not do anything about it. Bill expresses this by saying, let's be friendly with our friends. I think we must go at least 50% of the way toward letting them know what we have. What we're really like. What is there for alcoholics 
if they will get them to it. We need, we must have the help of the non-alcoholic world in which all of those alcoholics live, because many of them are unable to make a decision by themselves, unable to even get themselves to us. They're like somebody marooned on an island who doesn't know how to swim and hasn't got a boat. And we have boats and we can swim too. And also we've got people who can build bridges. And I, for one, feel responsible about using every conceivable method that exists to reach those people. So really, all I have to say to you is what we were saying to ourselves at our 30th anniversary. I am responsible. When anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand of AA always to be there. And for that, I am responsible. Thank you.